It's about the tools we use. It's about the stories we tell. It's about how we change. It's evolution, baby. All right, and here we are back again with my man, Michael Porcelli. Um, and we had a freaking wild and amazing conversation last week about conspiracy and in the time of COVID and all the different things that um, really add up to a conspiratorial climate. Uh, part of which we talked about is this modern age we're living in of filter bubble, bubbles and postmodernism and different values of consciousness being expressed in the world, that there's just a lot of fractured reality, as we might call it, right? We literally can have different experiences of what's happening in the moment, uh, of what is true in the world. And so you had this amazing idea to, uh, and what we're going to be talking about this week is this concept of shared reality. And we're going to be putting in the show notes an amazing um, article you posted on Medium that really just kind of beautifully and cleanly outlines this in a, in a deeper sense that his work, um, I know I was first exposed to that term in the authentic relating world, which you referred to in that article. And it it's a very um, uh, real applied version of that in, in terms of how do we find shared reality and relating with each other in the moment, which I think is part of what we'll talk about today. And then also, I think, just broadening this to the cultural level of how do we find shared reality in this moment when there's such strong beliefs that get, I think, fused into our identity and values a lot of time. So it's, you know, it's sometimes it's hard to bridge that gap. Yeah, totally. <clears throat> so my history with it is, I mean, it was around 2009. I learned about authentic relating and circling and this kind of I'm gonna call it like facilitated communication and relationship process, kind of touchy feely stuff, workshops and you know, how to have better relationships. And yeah, uh, this was a central concept there and really practical at that level. And then over the years, I became like a teacher of the same set of skills, the same toolkit. And I kind of started probing a little bit more into like where this applies at a more broad social level. So I kind of want to do that arc and actually start small, the kind of microcosm yeah. of like two people talking and then like expand it out into something a more like a macrocosm of like the situation that we're in right now in society, you know, especially over the past, I don't know how long you would trace it, but it, at the very least, the, the better part of the last decade um, and uh, how shared reality does seem to be fragmenting in the public sphere in a way that is a bit disorienting for a lot of people. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that too. We might end up repeating some of the stuff we talked about in the conspiracy theory podcast, but there's a deep relationship between uh, kind of like the, what is a healthy shared reality and then kind of what is a fractured shared reality and how that kind of is a, sort of ripe for conspiracy thinking when there isn't much of a shared reality. Um, Absolutely. 
that that kind of connects it back up to before. So let's let's start with just the basic version of it because I think it's just almost like a lot of personal growth stuff sometimes seems like uh, David Allen calls it a blinding flash of the obvious or yeah, totally <laughs> advanced common sense or the kind of thing that, like when you talk about it everybody goes like of course but then it's like well do you do it and that was kind of a humbling experience for me in my personal growth journey was realizing like there's a difference between like understanding a thing and being able to do it effectively sort of like yes. i get lifting weights builds muscles okay i understand that and then maybe you go, i lift a weight <laughs> once okay that might do something but like you have to actually put it into practice. It's like the application of the knowledge yeah. that actually is the value. It's not just the knowledge of the knowledge, right? The understanding. It's the embodiment is, is you know, I, I would kind of talk about it, which it was one of the things that I loved about when, um, you know, I was, when you and I first started meeting, maybe it was when I was kind of exiting the Boulder scene and had, had been in the integral community for a long time. And it was just as the authentic stuff was starting to kind of, connect with the integral scene. And what I loved about it was, ah, here's the embodiment. Here's the application of, so theoretically, we know about different worldviews and people make meaning in different ways and we could talk about that. But then this was the actual tool set for, okay, and how do you do that in real time? How do you take this wet, you know, vast wide net and actually get somebody's world? Right. understand how they're perceiving and experiencing the moment and the values that sometimes kind of um, make that up. So I, I love that. It's one of the things I, I, I love about this work is it's like the nuts and bolts of how you can actually speak and connect with people who might make meaning in a different way or experience the world in a different way from you. Totally. So, so the basic in terms of just being practical, it's like anytime you are trying to coordinate with another person towards some kind of shared goal. And the, the, the obvious examples are you and a coworker, you and a friend, you and a family member, you and a spouse, especially if you're building a household together. That's, that's one of the rubber meets the road for a lot of people. And that is like, how do we communicate so that we know that we're basically on the same page or on the same page enough that we can kind of be in a flow or live in harmony together? Like just two people in a household, let's say. Well, the basic two ingredients are you got to be able to reveal your own experience, to share your own experience in an effective way, and you got to be able to understand somebody else's perspective. We call it getting their world. And both people need to be able to do both things in order to do the thing we call weaving shared reality, which is like the creation of a shared understanding is sort of like some informational object or something that's in my brain that's kind of roughly speaking very much the same as one that's in your brain about what we are doing, right? Or about what the world is or something like that, a shared internal state about the world that we kind of do some protocols in a way to like form the belief that we have a shared reality about something. It's very simple, right? Like we just, sometimes we make assumptions or we bring our previous experience into the moment. Well, oh, I thought you meant this. Oh, I didn't really mean that. So you kind of have these conversations like, oh, so I misunderstood you in this way. Or you misunderstood me in that way. Okay. Or we agreed about this, but we disagreed about that. Or I, I thought you were going to pick that up on the way home, you know, but 
oh, you were just saying that you wanted it or or I was just saying that I wanted it, but you didn't get that I was asking for it. Like these mm-hmm. basic sort of like misses. Oh, we're talking past each other. You know, people are really familiar with the like the micro experience of like, oh, there was a missing moment of shared reality or we communicated in a way that didn't quite land or hit. And then sometimes we really do. We're like, oh, we're totally there. Yes, we're on the same page. We're thinking about this in the same way. And it feels really good when it's there, right? So like this is totally. a familiar everyday experience for a lot of people. And I kind of wanted to start there and hear kind of your thoughts yeah. on this, the basics of it. No, I think it's it's super important. Um and you know it it it's great because it it's it's hard for me to not talk about this integrally, but right in terms of the quadrants, the idea that we have interiors and exteriors and um the social and individual like this is kind of the magic of the lower left, right? Like the lower left quadrant um, where there's something happening between us that no one can point to on a microscope, right? So there's the words we're saying, uh, which is one thing, but then there's this thing that you're speaking to, the shared reality, which is kind of a, a resonance in our interiors in a way that we know something is true. It's kind of hard to explain, but the result of it certainly that I've experienced in my life is when it's true, that's when I feel connection and that's when I feel resonance. And those things are the root of intimacy, you know, of actually, oh, I feel close to you. I feel seen by you. Um, and I know in, in the, the community you were part of, right, there's use of the term aletheia to kind of explain that moment sometimes that, that hits and it, it's, it's a visceral thing right? Like usually what I love about it is seeing the way it ripples through people's nervous systems. Like there's like an exhale and like a, ah, just like, yeah, that feels true. And then something like happens to everyone in the space that feels so, so good. Yeah. Yeah. There's almost like, um, so you're hitting on a couple things. One is that the quality of when the shared reality is like happening you know, sometimes it could be a mundane, we're coordinating a work effort, but, you know, a lot of times there's like a, a feeling of like, aha, sometimes people say, aha, or they'll nod, like a lot of nodding or a feeling of almost like excitement. It sort of like starts bubbling up and people are going like, totally, yes, that's it. Like this <laughs> feeling or moments where you could be saying that, and maybe you're not saying that, but on the inside, maybe you're feeling that kind of a thing. That's uh like a, whatever you want, like a, a experiential sort of indicator that that's happening. It's like in your phenomenology, so to speak, there's sort of like a, 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 a felt experience of what the achievement of shared reality sort of feels like for many people that is usually a good guide for um, noticing when it's there. Um, so there's, there's that piece. And then the other part I would say is this, this relationship between shared reality and a sense of connection. And um, they're deeply intertwined. I think this is actually one of the core ideas in authentic relating is if, is if you and I put our focused attention on like, let's create a shared understanding about something, especially something that's happening between us about a relationship, let's say, or let's say we were, you know, doing a circle where you were the focus and it was like, okay, let's do a, let's try to create a shared understanding between the two of us about what this is like for Jason, right? Like Mm -hmm. as I 
sort of fill in the details of my internal representation of your world as I get your world more and you're confirming it with me, you and I are likely to develop. It's not necessarily guaranteed every time, but it happens so often it's worth noting that like we will start to feel a sense of connection with each other, like a felt sense of closeness or intimacy or camaraderie, kind of like a there's an emotional or an affective dimension to it, which is kind of interesting because we're focusing on shared understanding more in the yeah. mental line, but it sort of develops, it sort of pulls up this affected emotional feeling of connection. And there's like the relationship goes actually both ways there where if I sort of pursued connection, let's say I want to be often this time happened with gendered relationships or mm -hmm. sexual types of relationships where it's like I'm pursuing kind of the good feelings of connection primarily, not understanding. But at a certain point, somebody's going to be like, hang on a second, what is this? What is this meaning? <laughs> So then there's almost like, oh, the, the feeling of the connection getting stronger sort of makes the need to have shared reality more acute. Like it becomes more relevant that we are on the same page, at least some, like having the relationship talk. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> Where yeah. is this going? Yeah. So t totally. I, you know, the, 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 the frame I often use um, from kind of the authentic relating world with a lot of guys I work with is... To some extent, it's the art of making the implicit explicit. So actually naming what's happening here, what of our what of our each of our understandings about what's happening here and kind of getting it out there. And you know, what I kind of love about this work and even that feeling of connection you were just speaking to is it doesn't always mean we're totally in agreement, right? Like but there's, there's this other layer that happens when we're doing this work of mutual understanding where it's like, I may not agree with you, but I can feel there, there can still be this deep level of connection of understanding what it's like to be you and how you see the world that, um, you know, for me, almost inevitably, even if I like don't have the same beliefs or values, it helps me feel more compassion for the, the person I'm with, right? Like, oh, okay, now I can see why you might experience our relationship like that or the world like that. And I just think that's that's so, <laughs> so useful in this day and age and so important for, you know, particularly <laughs> bringing it back to like gendered relationships. A, a lot of times, you know, part of what I teach, men to do is, you know, take the lead a little bit more in relationship, which a lot of times is actually like, hey, what are we doing here? And what are we trying to create? What do you want and what I want? Because so many people just don't take the time to do that and just kind of move towards relationship because the connection feels good. And then, oh, you find out later on, maybe where we're going in life isn't so aligned. And there's some conflict there that, um, it just helps to know earlier in time. So again, what I love about this stuff is it's super practical, like incredibly useful on the day to day. Totally. Yeah. And you just, you just touched on something I want to at least hit, go into a little bit briefly is um, you didn't use the word, but it, uh, you, you talked about a number of different sort of flavors of empathy. Um, there's different ways of slicing it, but one is um, cognitive empathy, 
which is focused more on the intellectual understanding. I kind of understand kind of your thought content or you understand mine. And then the other one is a, a emotional empathy, which is sort of like the felt sense of resonance. Like I sort of, I'm sort of feeling what it's like to be you or something like that, or mm-hmm. bodies are sort of vibing with each other. And then the third one you brought up was uh, something that's called empathic concern or also known as compassion. And there's a way that um, these things are sort of somewhat independent, but they are also somewhat intertwined with each other. Like if you have an understanding of somebody and you can sort of feel a little bit of a sense of what they're feeling, you will sort of naturally develop a compassion for them, even if you don't totally agree with them about everything, right? There's, um, there, there's a thing about shared reality that is, that is really distinct from getting to agreement. You know, oftentimes people have an implicit frame in a discussion or almost all the time in an argument. Like this is a debate or it's like a fight or we're going to see who wins or who is correct. Right. And like, uh, if you're pursuing shared reality as the primary goal, or if you pursue shared reality before trying to convince, right, you'll, you'll discover the ways that you agree and the ways that you disagree. You'll actually be able to like become more precise in the kind of cognitive empathy mode but you'll actually create more emotional resonance that's mutual. And then you're, uh, and this is what I think is kind of amazing is like, you actually are more both likely to influence the other. Totally. (laughs) And convince the other you're right. Or potentially discover you had part of the right answer. I had part of the right answer. And then by the dialogue where we focus on shared reality first and, convincing secondarily we might actually create a synthesis between our perspectives where my perspective is improved by what i've added to it from yours and yours is improved by what you've added to it from mine make sense Uh, totally i love i mean to me that's the essence of what makes it an integral practice (laughs) something something emerges that's often neither just my my perspective or your perspective, but in that shared reality, there's that creative tension of, oh, okay, something maybe both and uh, can, can be true. And we find something new in that moment that um, is just so much more conducive <laughs> to write. And th- this is the beautiful thing I, lo- I love about, you know, this is a practice too, is, you know, somebody who did spend a decade immersed in integral and, oh my God, uh, we have it figured out and this is how the world needs to think. And like, if we all just that, 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 which if you don't have shared reality first, people are like, I don't want to fucking read that book. Get away from me. <laughs> right. <laughs> Versus if you can get to that place of this mutual shared reality of like connection, when in my experience personally, in coaching I've done with family members, um, in authentic relating work and circling for sure. It's, it's once someone feels seen and gotten mm-hmm. like, Oh, I can feel that you understand my reality. They're so much more open to actually having a dialogue or new ideas or seeing things differently. But until that moment happens, it's, it's more like I'm entrenched in my side and you're entrenched in your side because well, your side's wrong because you actually just don't understand my side. 
But when the shared reality happens, oh, this person understands, like they actually get my experience and how I see the world. And I've just seen time again. And certainly for me, it's been like, that's when an actual new openness happens and a, like a willingness to let some new information in um, that I think is just so crucial and so important. And, and again, yeah. it's such an integral practice. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. It's like, it's like the pathway, like I sort of know now, like, oh, if you want to influence me, do it this way. Cause I actually like being influenced in that way. Um, another interesting thing that has happened, which I'm not even sure you're aware of this. Are you, you know, the rationality community, this kind of movement with all our meetups and the center for applied rationality and the less wrong website, all those folks. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know this, but they got super into circling and authentic relating. They're completely. <laughs> no. It's like about half of that population loves it and does it all the time. And I've, I've done it a lot over there and, and I've done their trainings. I actually did the CFAR training and what has, what strikes me is the parallel with some of what I call, um, I think that somebody's calling group, group rationality techniques or like dial, like rational dialogue techniques. Um, the, the idea of the steel man or the steel person, <laughs> like, like make, make the other person's case so well that they totally get that you get what their point is. And then that actually creates the ability for you to do rationality together better. Um, there's another thing called Rappaport's rules that a philosopher, Daniel Dennett uh, does is, is a very similar kind of a thing. And they even have a, a new, um, a new technique called double truxing, which is very much, uh, weaving what we would call weaving shared reality to the point where you sort of understand the the underlying variable that if it was if was flipped one way would potentially have both of you agree one way or the other. So it's like discovering oh, the actual key point of contention is, uh, and I'm just like looking at all the stuff that they're talking about about having just effective rational discourse that's not like a political debate or like what we see in like mm-hmm. candidates just up there. This is just like so stupid. It's just boring. Like, um, but doing it in this way, actually kind of, you can, you can sort of feel almost uh, like the mind meld happening in dialogue, even when it's not touchy feeling, even if what we're like weaving shared reality about is like our perspective about a bunch of stuff like science or, um, mm-hmm the epidemiology of COVID, for example, to take a really relevant example, like how do we tell what the facts of the matter are, you know, like share with me your thinking, I'll share with you my thinking. And like the creation of that group mind is very, uh, I think uniquely human. It's like a fabulous capacity of the human species that makes us very different than most other species in this way is just how elaborate the creation of virtual and shared realities can become and how important it is you know that uh, i I feel like that's one of the many kind of transition points we're at right now of what is the shared reality of this moment in time right because there's actually not a lot of it Mm -hmm. i think part of part of why this is such an important tool and skill set and thing to start to wrap our heads around both individually and culturally is 
right? Kind of from the developmental lens uh, of inner rolling consciousness is there's never been a time in history where there's more active stages of consciousness on the planet, like literally different experiences in the world. You know, we started out and there were a couple and then another one got added, and then another one got added, and then another one got added. So we're having to actually, there's more reality to weave together out there between people right now, right? And I think that's part of this fracturing we're feeling and this this, this uh, tension is we've never had to link together so many different um, ways of seeing the world and experiences of the world right now that, um, you know, I think we talked a little bit about last week of just how how this stuff is playing out in terms of depending on what area of the country you live in, you're going to be experiencing this crisis in an incredibly different way, right? If you're in a rural community, you might be never understand why it's a, a threat. Your reality is so different. Um, but in, in I, I love, yeah, I love the um, the overlap with the, the rational groupthink community and this idea of the, the steel man argument. I mean, that's, Right. That's the thing I've been aching for in a political leader of like, what if that was a debate? What if the debate was getting up there and explaining your opponent's perspective on the world better than they could? Like, I would be fascinated by that. Right. Because then it's a whole different argument like, yep. when there's that shared reality first of, I think, you know, in, you know, whatever you think about him, I thought that was one of the amazing things about Obama is that I thought he was incredibly effective at speaking conservative values. Mm-hmm. Often better than conservatives <laughs> when I would hear him up there speaking about, you know, individual liberty and the power of community and and stuff. And something I've been aching for that I don't really see particularly well in any, you know, Buttigieg could do it a little bit, I think, particularly with some of the Christian values, which I think was really important. Mm-hmm. Um, but none of the others I really see being able to do that. And I'm like, that's such an important skill set to in to you know find some shared reality with all those different parts at least here in the US of our country where people do experience the world in a different way where you know one of the things missing right now like we talked about last week is there's this like our our national identity is just shattered there's there's no shared reality about what being an american means anymore right like what the we have these in, implicit ideas i think between us that our developmental and cultural worldviews kind of speak to, but that nobody is speaking the new vision for that, you know, which I think I'm like, oh my God, I'm aching for it, mm-hmm. aching for that. And how amazing it would be to be able to like get our energy in a healthy way behind that. But again, that takes a certain type of shared reality that I'm glad to know, you know, you and some of those communities are spearheading learning this. So hopefully it starts to filter up more and more and more. Yeah. Yeah. You're, we're kind of going into the macro now because we kind of like left <laughs> part of it. But there's a, I just want to just trace that there's a direct relationship to like, you know, how you talk to, you know, if you, if you go home for the holidays with your family of origin, you know, how you talk to them. And often the, the cliche of like, you know, let's, let's not talk about religion or politics or something there. Well, why? Well, because people don't really have the good tools to that. So they're, even within the family system, things have become fragmented over time. But I Great do point. think there's a direct connection from your ability to do this with somebody that you know, who you disagree with, or whatever, or just to work shit out with like your intimate partner to like, have your relationship kind of continue through time. And 
the kind of skill sets that kind of we need, I think, at a civic level. Um, and I'll take a little maybe sort of anthropological, philosophical detour here because we are bridging into the macro. Sometimes I haven't uh, imagined in my mind um, like some very ancient, like hundreds of thousands of years ago, some human ancestor, like two of them sort of like pointing to a thing and like making a sound, uh, like and then <laughs> repeating the sound to each other. And then them having kind of like, boom, like a mini little Aletheia moment where they're like, oh, I think we're kind of talking about the same thing, right? Or if you are in a foreign a country that, or a country that speaks a different language than you are, and you're like, you know, this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it goes like that, and then you repeat it back, and they say it again, and you're like, what are you doing? You're doing some really rudimentary creation of shared reality. Like this sound kind of goes yeah. with an object, that type of a thing. And that, as part of our kind of evolutionary history, something like that i'm not saying that's exactly scientific but something like those types of things began to happen in human communities and then over the you know eons of you know prehistory of humanity and then the history of humanity has been these communities of shared meaning and in a way you could say like well, the existence of history, whatever we want, where we want to draw that line. Agrarian societies 12,000 years ago is an, a common one that we pick. Could be described as like, we could talk about farming as a technology that we developed. We could also talk about the social technology that we developed of yeah. being able to weave our minds together in a social group, right? There's, there's some animals that do have sort of basic forms of social coordination, the way wolf packs hunt, or you talk about things like bees and termites and how hyper connected they are. But we, we have something that sort of stands out in a way that is sort of beyond, like we, we have a, a, a civilization of that spans the globe, right? Like groups and tribes of people have essentially penetrated every ecological niche in existence on the planet. I mean, sometimes like Antarctica is very temporary, but like more or less we have sort of figured out through our ingenuity, but like that ingenuity and inventiveness, you know, is not like the, it's not like the sole scientific inventor hero, (laughs) like sort of like, right. It's like Newton even said it. Like if I've seen further, it's only through standing on the shoulders of giants, right? Like there's a social aspect mm-hmm. to our technological progress and everything that we have created together, whether it is actually the invention of a tool or a technology, or if it's even kind of the invention of these bizarre pieces of social reality that sort of only exist because we believe they exist like money, right? Or yeah. agreement, or a thing called the United States of America. Like, what is that? It's not exactly the land, right? It's a, it's an entity that you can't actually see directly in a physical way, right? This sort of world of our social reality is built out of tons and tons of little interactions between human minds over thousands of years, like 
Like how long has money been with us? How long has writing been with us? How long has numbers been with us? How long has accounting been with us? And how wide, like, and you can sort of look and sort of see how things have, have kind of layered in and what they create. And now we have weird things like blockchains and stuff, which are sort of like decentralized accounting ledgers, right? Like, but each one of these things is a kind of way of, of representing shared reality. That's is that yeah. reality is built out of shared reality. I love that. That's uh, that's pretty wild to think about, <laughs> actually. And nowhere else do we see that being done in the cosmos to this extent, right? No, there's no evidence that it's happening anywhere else or has ever happened anywhere else at this time. Like, and what a unique and precious thing. Um, yeah, that's kind of blowing my mind right now <laughs> in terms of how these different things are so much a manifestation of that. And I think that's, you know, kind of the Enneagram nine optimist in me is like, okay. And it, it this feels like one of those moments, you know, like this, this pandemic is an opportunity to start to weave some new shared reality about what it means to be a human being on this planet. Right. And I, I, I think that's a really, it's a really interesting way for me to even think about, you know, a different type of, of politics, which tends to be right. When they get up there on the debate stage, it's here's where you're wrong. Right. But mostly what they're, here's where you're wrong. Here's where you're wrong. Here's where you're wrong. Versus this like, well, here's where we share a truth and how can we make that truth more available to more people? Right. You know, I think to me that, that, that's my idea of, um, what's always inspired me about this concept of the United States is, you know, more rights and more liberty for more diverse amounts of people. Like, right. Like just the whole time, always like our lens is giving that away more and more and more and growing that, that pot, or at least it was, you know, mm -hmm. for a long time, but like what, that's a cool identity, right? Like I want to be part of that. I, I, I'm excited to be part of that um, nation or, or concept in that, but even beyond that right now, I think that's part of what we're, you know, having to deal with of just like, yeah, what is the, you know, to me, like part of what this crisis is illuminating is what are our shared reality of like, what's the worst we're okay with a human experience being, you know, like that's, that's something I kind of think isn't explicitly talked about in our culture, right? Like as someone who lives five miles or so from Skid Row, and has to like deal with like, actually we have a shared reality around we're okay with people living like this. It's kind of, it's, it's more implicit, but um, there's kind of just a general buy-in. But I think part of what we're seeing with like the shock of everything that's happening right now is this realization that, oh wait, a lot of how we've decided to live is just decisions we've made about how the world is supposed to work. Right. Oh, what if we did just give everyone a thousand dollars a month? Like we could do that, right? Like we actually could do that. That's just a decision that we culturally have to make. Um, anyway, yeah, kind of getting off on tangents, but uh, 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 I just I'm, I'm craving for it at a cultural level. You know, I I, I notice that like I miss um, like a shared vision for the future, that type of thing, a way of creating unity. Yeah coherence across a larger group of people. Totally. I think that's right. It right. feels good. Mm -hmm. I think that's part like just in that same way we have that, ah, 
one-on-one small yeah. groups. Yeah. And there's that like shared reality moment. It feels good. Like it feels good in my nervous system. And yeah. It absolutely feels good on a, a wider level. I think sometimes, you know, that's when I, I get, I get inspired. I, I, I feel inspired. I feel excited about, um, the world when that starts to happen and even bigger scales too. You know, I think for me, that's certainly part of the attraction of something like Burning Man or festival cultures, getting to feel like, a, okay, this is a vision for how we could live. And we're all kind of bought into that. You know, it's not perfect, but there's like something about everyone here is down with like, what if we didn't treat each other like asses? <laughs> it's just something as simple as that. But yeah, how do we, man, yeah, getting that on a, that bigger scale. You know, which the certainly the kind of old joke is it's just going to take another consciousness attacking us <laughs> for our consciousness to unify of you just need an other that's non-human and then we'll be like oh <laughs> so i mean there's a lot in what you said i kind of want to riff with and there may be we may get to do a little bit here in our conversation of like weaving about yeah. where we agree or maybe agree to disagree let's just see if we can touch into totally. it so, I mean, one of the things that I think uh, I got my eye on that maps to some of the stuff that you're saying is this kind of like um, fragmentation of the way that people make sense of the world. And we talked about this on our, on our previous one, like there was a way that, that, you know, the national news was sort of like one basic thing for everybody when we were in the era of broadcast TV and now we're in the internet world where suddenly like there's more news and information that you can possibly take in and you can basically, you know, make up a story about whatever it is you want to believe in and Google it and find other people that would confirm it somehow. And so that's a weird um, information ecology to be in. And I do think it does fragment things. Um, but to bring in a little hopeful note, suppose. A, a possibly hopeful note is to think of, uh, you know, some historians think that a very similar thing happened when the printing press came around, right? That, then there was like a massive spread of like fake news and misinformation and conspiracy theories back when the printing press came around and there was weird, uh. thing, you know, um, witch trials and things like that that came out of that. So the the hopeful thought is like, okay, our, our technological infrastructure, our communications, our social reality kind of evolved to create this internet thing and maybe in the early days of the internet we were all very hopeful oh we're all going to communicate it's all going to make peace and then uh interestingly enough i think ken wilbur called this a long time ago where he says like actually what's going to happen is all the people all the crazy people that believe certain weird screwed up things are all going to find each other and then create these little islands of almost like these little epistemic islands that are kind of just disjointed from each other and yeah. I think we've kind of seen that. And I think that's kind of the kind of rewind time to the emergence of social media and this kind of interesting collision of search engines and, uh, you know, um, newsfeed algorithms, right? Or search engine optimization techniques, you know, meme hacking or whatever the people do to kind of get their thing to spread. Viral spread. Virally. Yeah. Uh, like mind viruses are like hyper uh like there's we're just in a pollution of them these in this day and age um but i think where 
potentially I might diverge from you is in that environment, I think what's happening, COVID is such a perfect moment for this as well, is like, but even Brexit and the election of Trump in 2016 is, um, there's a sense of a loss of national identity, not just in the US, but for many countries. But the new, whatever you want to call this, neoliberal globalism world order thing, people are kind of skeptical from, interestingly, from far left and far right perspectives that like, what is that? What are we just like generic global citizens, you know, like, I mean, maybe, I mean, there, there's a way that these kind of global cities, places like Amsterdam and New York city and London and Hong Kong all start resembling each other in certain ways. And like, okay, maybe there is an emerging global culture, but it feels sort of devoid of, or maybe, um, unmoored from or disconnected from what in integral theory we would call like a healthy amber or the blue dynamics, the rootedness of like land and people and tradition. And I think some of the, the, the resurrection of a conservative mindset in the U S with the Brexiteers, some of the nationalist movements throughout Europe kind of questions like this EU, do we want this, um, new global hegemonic thing, whatever that thing is to sort of almost like the Borg on Star Trek, just like (laughs) and lose our sense of uniqueness as peoples. And I think there's a, a degree of like a backlash, which is, it's sort of depending on what level you look at it. It's like sort of like a loss of the shared reality as a nation or a people. Um, in favor of maybe this other global narrative that sort of is, seems to be, at least for many people, missing an important ingredient. And, and I, do, I don't think it's strictly that way for everybody. I think a lot of Londoners, for example, identify more as Europeans rather than as Britons, right? But there's a lot of people throughout the rest of the UK that identify more with their, you know, I'm Welsh or I'm Irish or I'm, you know, an English person. Um, so I, I think there's a, a question around what's the right structure. And, and sometimes in the sentiments that you expressed, like the integral one, uh, I, I sort of think there's, um, I don't necessarily think a, a global unification around policy or governance is necessarily better for satisfying that need of shared reality that humans have. It actually seems to be kind of eroding it for huge segments of the population, ones who are more connected to tradition or um, origin. Absolutely. Origin. So what are your thoughts on uh, that? Uh, no, I actually totally agree. And I think for me, part of my ache has what I'm missing in this moment is that strong sense of nationalism, right? Like the, I think we talked a little bit about last week and I certainly was tweeting like, where's the moonshot? Like, where's the vision of, Hey, we're America. Let's not only 
figure out this fucking testing thing so we can be the best in the world, but be so good at it, we can export that to the rest of the globe. Like, I'd be right. I'd fucking love that. Private sector, government sector, like, let's get together. Let's get every American tested for antibodies in the next 30 to 60 days. That nation, let's do this. We can do this. We're great, you know, like that's the healthy version of that to me. And I don't see that. And so I, I miss that. I, I agree. And I think, yeah, what you spoke to is actually a cool, it's like the both and that that's needed in that, right? In in our healthy version, I actually think this is something that America probably does better than every other country in the sense of being able to bring in different cultures and having a both and, right? Where even if it's this idea of I'm German American or I'm um, Italian American or Mexican American, where uh, what makes us fucking awesome? I love actually that I can go down to, um, you know, Chinatown or go down to um, these different areas of LA that are super specific in the, in their, their, their cultural representation and the food and the signs and all that. And we have the shared reality of, of kind of being Americans, which to me is, is awesome. But that both and of, you know, having that individual and it's that individual stuff that's so interesting, right? That's where it's exciting. It's actually the diversity to me. That is why I love living in a city like LA. Um, you know, I, I, it was actually one of the many things I noticed and despite the chaos of LA love about living here versus Boulder it was like, I got here and I heard more languages in a week than I had heard, you know, in four years of living in Boulder. And um, there's just like a, a richness to that diversity of perspective um, versus I think the global thing, which I've, I've named at least, and this is, you know, kind of my, my spiel on Boulder. <laughs> my experience of it was like, you know, Boulder is all about having a perspective of diversity. Yeah. But like LA is a diversity of perspectives and like, I'm much more engaged and alivened by that l- latter thing. And I think that might be some of the shift in terms of that, like global culture goo is, oh, we should all be one is more of a perspective of diversity rather than like the richness and bringing in the the full bodiedness of all these differences, but still having enough shared reality that we're working towards, you know, in my mind, like, how do we reduce suffering? Like this, something as simple as that, like to, to me. Um, yeah, you're with, I, I'm with you actually. <laughs> I, I think that's a, a, a powerful, but I think even what that I love illuminates then is like, there's the more meta level, really juicy conversation then of, in terms of the implicit and explicit of like, what makes an American American? What makes a Brazilian a Brazilian? Like to really get to feel into that, like what's, what's the gift of our culture and our representation that is totally different, right? It's an energy. You can step off the plane and it's like, holy shit, it feels different to be here than Mm -hmm. it does somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, that involves at some extent creating some shared reality around, you know, even what a cultural identity is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And those things, they change and evolve over time. Like cultures are not sort of static. It would be sort of weird if like for the sake of diversity, we just like fossilized all the cultures in kind of some past state, uh, you know, like yeah. I do 
I do like cultural interchange and a lot of the richness of what makes cultures what they are today is all the ways that they borrowed and stole from each other for many, many decades in the past. And I think it's, it's pretty cool. Like I, I, I like that kind of stuff. So, I mean, touching, touching in on this, I want to, I sort of always get a little hesitant to get too political, but, um, you did talk about the debates and one thing I think I wanted to bring in about, about this uh, quality of the dialogue is like, you know, whatever the mainstream media is doing when they kind of put people up there and they can talk for five minutes and they're just telling each other that they're wrong. You know, on the other hand, uh, I think it was Bernie and Tulsi Gabbard. There might've been more were on Joe Rogan. Right. And Joe Rogan talks to people. He does not edit it at all. And he talks to them for several hours. Mm-hmm. And um, he has a, I would say, uh, a circling like style, an authentic relating like style, where he doesn't try to like push too hard against another person's perspective to try to like challenge them or something. He will now and then. But for the most part, he does this thing where it's like, I'm just going to welcome them on their own terms. And oftentimes I feel like I go into the reality of whoever it is that he's interviewing for quite an extended time. And when I, I heard him interview Tulsi and when I heard him interview Bernie, I got really excited about the possibility of those kinds of political dialogues uh happening more often and then recognizing too that uh whatever it is that used to pass muster in previous decades like the speech making you know or the stump speeches the political debates and we kind of went okay cool i'm getting it like there's a weird almost disbelief in the authenticity or the validity of that style that is becoming more widespread. I don't know if it's sort of taken over the average person like quite yet, but at least me as a consumer of a lot of alternative channels of media, like podcasts, Mm -hmm. for example, it does seem like there's a lot of healthy skepticism and kind of disbelief like it just feels like talking points right you're not really telling us what you think and ironically this is exactly why trump won or one of the reasons is because people had that feeling of he's not trying to conform to the status quo stylistic whatever like presidential whatever you want to call this group think that the political class has sort of had he sort of did not conform to it and so he ended up appealing to people who maybe didn't quite realize it but sort of realized it when they saw him or heard him of like the level of just blandness or inauthenticity or genericness or shallowness of standard political discourse like that people were just tired of hearing, like they just didn't want to listen to that anymore. 
it's like it's a bit of a paradox because in a way he sort of rings true for more people even though he might be pretty off base in terms of his factual information there i don't know like what do you think of this aspect no i think that's 100 percent true with him um you know i would maybe label it a little pre-trans in his part in that uh you know he was speaking to the system doesn't work and i'm different from the system i think he was more you know i'll just label him i tend to see him more as a red power god narcissist <laughs> you know but what that speaks that speaks separate from the system right like it, it, it rings as you can't trust you know i think he was speaking a distrust of the system that was 100% present on both sides in the last election and in this election i think there's actually an ache right that we're we're seeing that wow, the status quo we've allowed is not really feeling right anymore. It doesn't work for enough people. And I think, you know, people in the, in um, deep red areas of the country feel that, right? My life isn't necessarily getting easier or better in this system, right? It's not, I don't feel like anyone's on my team. And then I think a lot of us kind of more left coast liberal elites that I would consider myself part of, the same, Right holy shit, this just doesn't seem to be working for most of us. The system, something's wrong. And I absolutely agree. He spoke to that. And right, who is the antithesis of that in the last election? It was Hillary, like literally born and bred through the system for like 30 years now, like just the manifestation of that, whether or not you agree with her personal politics. And I think a lot of people are just feeling that not mainstream, not system, distrusting things. So I think I, I mean, Trump is amazing at that, actually. You know, he's he's really good, um, I think, at, at, at finding the ways people spe- feel separate and speaking to that. Like, it, it's actually a gift of his in, 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 in a large extent that I think we're still kind of, you know, wrestling with culturally because now we kind of see it again. Joe Biden, the system. Bernie Sanders, not the system. Right. And that tension is just so totally, totally there again. Um, And, you know, these deeper dialogues, I think you're totally right. You know, I heard one thing on um, the amazing uh, podcast, Your Undivided Attention, which if you don't listen to is Tristan Harris. It's fucking so dope, man. But uh, their recent one was talking about disinformation and misinformation and how part of, I think what you're speaking to as well is, Anytime a new media is introduced, um, like our system doesn't yet have antibodies for it to detect what's real and what's not. So, you know, the printing press first comes out and if it's printed, it's true. You know, even before that, if the preacher at the front speaking it, it's true, right? It's unquestionable. And then every time this kind of dialectic happens, a new form of media comes in and then we actually have to develop the antibodies and the ability to process what's true, what's not true, what's real, what's not real. And we're at a time where people particularly, you know, they were speaking to some um, more uh, technologically behind countries and less affluent countries that are now given access immediately to the internet and like stuff spreads on WhatsApp so fast and there's no antibodies for you know, this could be false information because culturally it's just not something they've had to develop yet. But I, th- I think part of it is we are, 
you know, certainly at least I can speak to this as being true for myself. And I think that's maybe the feeling you were noticing or speaking to is we've developed antibodies for the kind of generic political talk of I'm going to tell you this because it's the safe thing that you need to hear. So you will elect me. But deep down inside, I actually probably feel this, believe this. And every now and then, like something true and authentic will come through and we'll be like, oh, that's, it's like fucking water. You know, it's just like, ah, 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 yes, yes, yes. And, you know, but I think we've developed that, like what it used to take, people are starting to get a little bit more sophisticated. And there's an embodiment piece, I think, that politicians are needing to actually be able to connect with that it's not enough for me to say certain words yeah but like where's my heart can you actually feel that i'm in congruence that this is like something i truly believe um even if it's sloppy even if it's not quite right which again in a more of a pre-way than a trans way i think trump's super congruent <laughs> he speaks what he thinks right yeah. just impulse by impulse and that in itself I can totally get like, it's kind of refreshing, right? He's like, fuck the rules. Here's what I believe is true. Yep. You're talking about something that I think we should cover, like just because it's practical and relevant. Is this um, the process of shared reality does not necessarily guarantee objective reality. And uh, there's like the flat earth people, right? There's definitely a lot of shared delusion. The conspiracy theory people in general, like mm-hmm. way out there on a thing where it's like, eh. and uh, I think it, number one, it speaks to the power of shared reality, right? Like you can really amplify a shared delusion really well and be very congruent with it. Um, and the other part I think is a guy, uh, I can't remember his name right now, but it was a book that came out just a couple of years ago called Against Empathy. And the reason why he wrote this was because uh, he talked about the ways that like focusing on, especially that second form of empathy, the emotional resonance, the emotional resonance to, to bring in a little bit of my um, facilitator theory here is strengthened when people are congruent, right? So like if I am speaking with conviction, you are more likely to feel that in your body and it will feel more like something often a stronger impact. Uh, but it can, I mean, this is sort of like the danger of the, the charismatic cult leader or even the charismatic authoritarian, right? Like mm-hmm. they say a thing and you're like, yes. Right. But the, the thing you got to be very cautious of is like the more your emotional arousal is going up, the, higher the likelihood is that you might accept some non-factual or inaccurate non-scientific idea, right? So like this is kind of like the the danger of uh, somebody like Trump who maybe is less factually informed but speaks with a lot of conviction in a way that people believe. So this is a little bit where kind of like the cognitive empathy and the emotional empathy sort of pull against each other. And like if you sort of overly admire something like shared reality and less uh are cross-checking that let's say we like empirical methods rational argumentation 
checking for logical fallacies, right? Like cognitive biases, right? The more you're likely to get kind of hijacked into one of these little like bubbles of like a lot of conviction about something that's very diluted. Totally. That's, I love that. And that that's a whole, I feel like I just understood have a more shared reality around the antibody idea in some ways from that I was just speaking to. And, you know, it reminds me of, I, I may get this wrong and you might have to help dial me into which one was which, but I very much remember, you know, one of my high school textbooks, maybe it was mathematics, had the dartboards to illuminate the difference between accuracy and precision mm-hmm. of you can have, um, I guess it's accuracy. Like a, a lot of the darts actually landed near each other, but they're super off the bullseye. They're in the wrong spot versus actually having them land in the right spot. Um, and that that's kind of what I hear you speaking to a little bit is we can have a ton of shared reality, but if that shared reality is around something factually untrue, you know, and this is again where I think integral theory and the idea of the quadrants is so important is, oh yeah, shared reality is down here. But mm-hmm. there's also an external reality, an objective reality that has its own truths, and mm-hmm. we need to weight them both, right? They they are both super important. Um, yeah. Oh my God. Totally. I, that that explains so freaking well. <laughs> another, there's another tricky thing right now, and this is um, some people kind of on this uh, intellectual dark web, like Eric Weinstein and his brother Brett and Sam Harris. And Eric always has these really f- kind of fun acronyms. He calls called the, the, the gated institutional narrative, the gin. I don't know if you've heard him talk about this on some of his podcasts, but like not that one. No, the, the issue here is there's two things happening simultaneously. On the one hand, there is uh, like if, there's this thing called the replication crisis happening in the sciences. There's funding bias. There's like cabals around the, the academic journals. And there's sort of ways that like, there's like a racket being run that actually sort of is corrupting science. Right. And this is the thing that is supposed to be the construct that gives us that validated objective reality that we can all kind of believe in the thing that's supposed to be the institution that is cross-checking our whatever hyped with like data and evidence and it does work i don't want to say that it totally does not work and you know eric would agree that it does work but he's sort of probing into the ways that it has kind of broken down and is actually fragmented and like it keeps certain kind of like what do you want to call it citizen scientists or citizen journalists or outsider research out uh in in a self-protecting way but it's also inside of it broken down and has perpetuated some falsehoods that need to be kind of like broken down so like that is happening but the other thing is if you go over here to like citizen journalists on (laughs) youtube or wherever it's just this is just like massive amounts of like that can't all be right right because it is just you know, Sandy Hook, oh, the 9-11 truth or that. Now there's like hashtag empty hospitals. I don't know if you've seen that hashtag going around. Oh, yeah, yeah. Film your hospital. Film your hospital. Prove that there's really no plague happening. And I'm like, oh, it's, it's sort of maddening because because what is happening is the ability to like be a corrective to the way that the institutions have been systematically in error 
is now more present than ever, like movements like open science and these kinds of things that mm-hmm. for the replication crisis that's happening in, in, in the social and psychological research and in medical research. It's like, cool, we need more of that to happen. But the very thing that like allows more of that to happen so explicitly validates this crazy ass internet. <laughs> like you don't believe everything you hear on the internet. It's like, it's like weird to kind of see these, these sort of two truths kind of like, like almost kind of grinding up against each other because it's like, you know, I, I do like my, high, what I think is the high quality outsider perspective, alternative research, but like, you know, I certainly look at a lot of what people call alternative research and go like, yeah, you guys are crazy. Like that is conspiracy, like nuttiness over there, you know? Oh my God. Moment that we're in, we're all kind of in this moment. Kind of like, how do we filter this? Fuck do we move forward? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that brought up again, kind of speaking in integral speak, you know, postmodernism's job is to deconstruct the systems that came before and point out, oh, hey, objective, rational scientism, it has forces driving it beyond just the objective, right? There are biases institutionally, there are political biases, there are financial biases and incentives that we really have to, to point out. And, you know, I think some of this kind of ties into, I, I don't know, you know, what it's called, but it's the you might know, but the, you know the way our bri- brains are wired for um, the negative more than the positive. Maybe. One bad experience, yeah, and boom, we're on alert for that. Uh, you want to anchor in a positive emotion, you have to like sit and hold it for sixty seconds. Oh, this is what it feels like to feel good right now and be happy. You know, one of the things weaving shared reality, I think, is good at slowing us down. And having letting those moments anchor in some ways, um, but the stuff that's happening of, oh, they got that prediction a little wrong, right? Like immediate, you can look for all the ways science is constantly getting it wrong, and we remember that. So it's you know kind of tends to throw some of the baby out with the bathwater, I think. But the the deeper thing I really love that you brought up here that. Um, is an inquiry. Fuck, man. I know I deal with as a as a coach, as a practitioner, and I think um, is a question of shared reality. To an extent, is you know we have these systems and institutions and lineages in the spiritual tradition that are meant to be a bit of a cross check, right? You need to get a certain certification. You need to practice a certain amount of hours. So you've had a little bit of cross checking that what you're speaking has some validity or truth to it, right? Mm-hmm. Like that that's one of the great gifts of spiritual lineages, which, you know, you need to sit on the cushion and, and serve a master for a long time. And then at one point that person will cross check your realization with everyone else in the community and be like, yeah, actually that feels like, like you're getting it. And mm-hmm. you're not just some shadow laden, you know, psychotic spiritual guru, which happens. And we saw the we've seen and are still feeling the result of here in the West of the the blowing up of those lineages and gurus just coming in that have had no cross check and causing tremendous amounts of damage. And then in you know in those lineages, we've also seen what happens when you put overt faith in that system that it's doing a cross check and it's not, and priests are doing awful things. And there's um, you know, 
all kinds of patriarchy and, and, and horrible things happening. But I think it really speaks to something that I, I don't know, I, I don't have it and you might help me illuminate it. This idea of, in my mind, like shared reality and the recognition of depth mm-hmm. and that part of what there yeah. is a truth to in certain lines and levels of development, there are people that have more depth that can actually see more reality, have more available access to data, right? I, you know, I, I, in the levels and lines way, I argue about, you know, I use an example of like, um, I'm not going to give people advice on how to create a stock portfolio, but if you have questions about how to build a WordPress site, I'm probably more knowledgeable than a lot of people. Like that's just because of my experience. There's a certain amount of a depth there. And I think one of the big confusions we're having is all those systems are breaking down. How do we cross check and create a shared reality? And where is the depth? Where mm-hmm. does it matter that someone has spent their life studying the spread of epidemics and viruses and have a certain knowledge base that is different than the amateur sleuth who is just collecting some data off the internet? And they both have some value, but th- there's there's the weightedness of depth. I don't I don't know how to make sense of in our culture yet of like what's our new standard for that? Because to even recognize depth, there has to be some shared reality, right? There has to be me feeling into your reality and getting to feel, oh, well, when Michael speaks about this type of facilitation or leadership, like he is including more than I am, like right? I can feel he has more time on the earth, more understanding, more boots to the ground. And so, okay, I am actually willing to trust your authority around that and grant you that in this moment. And that's, I think one of the things I see breaking down is like, um, that maybe Eric's kind of speaking to is we have these conflicts now, but no way to recognize like, what is, you know, who has the more depth who's including, I think, more of reality in their perspective, which in my mind, right or wrong, is the best case we have for who can include the most perspectives in reality and make sense of that. Like to me, that's depth and probably who I'm going to trust in a situation more than someone else. Um, But sometimes that is the fringe outsider, right? Who's not embedded in the system. So can see something novel and actually include a piece of reality that you know, the scientist that's just been working in the office totally misses. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't know if that even all this makes sense, but I feel like it is the important embodied thing that Integral is trying to work out of how do we recognize hierarchy, but not from just a label point of view, but actual like depth of consciousness or awareness or something that again though but to even get there there has to be a certain amount of reality about what that means yeah that yeah there's, there's you're bringing in the the depth of i call this is like a the the role of, of expertise right like i think if if i can feel confident in the expertise that i'm trusting then i will and everyone does to some extent outsource to expertise of some kind or another right like we, we don't have direct, like I said, jokingly last week, like, I don't even know through my own eyes that like Donald Trump is a real person and not just some simulation of a, of a thing, totally. right? Like, I've never met him, right? Like, but there's enough cross-checking from expertise and commoners or whatever, like they're non-experts that 
He's real. So there's some uh, way that socially, I think it is important for us to have systems of tracking and recognizing what you're calling depth or what, what we call expertise. Um, but to decouple, I think, access from expertise. And I think that's kind of what we're like, one of the ways of sort of validating the expertise in the past has been to kind of like, um, build a wall, right? Like it's, uh, it's sort of what like industry regulation that comes from the state looks like, and there's all, all kinds of ways that that gets corrupted and libertarians love pointing out things like regulatory capture and that sort of thing. Um, and if you look at the ways that the institutions of science have, have worked, it's been by the ways that they've sort of validated authentic expertise. But if you look at ways that it's sort of broken down, it's where the, the, uh, the expertise and the access have been very tightly coupled. And, uh, I think we're in a moment where we're trying to like, how do we, as a society, allow there to be things like open data, open science, open invention and industry and research or open source software and these kinds of things and still also validate and recognize depth and expertise. Um, and I think uh, it's playing out right in front of our eyes. Like one example from the COVID outbreak that happened two weeks ago, I think it was two weeks ago or last week. There's so there's all kinds of people publishing on medium about COVID and there were yeah. two fellas, one guy, you know, his stuff went viral. Tomas Pueyo, I think it was. And like tons of data analysis, totally an amateur, just kind of like one of these programmer dudes who has access to big data tools, kind of like, we should be worried because, and then he just graphs and data and all this kind of stuff. And like his shit went totally viral. And when I talked to like, Experts that I know, like people, epidemiologists, they're kind of like, yeah, two thumbs up on Pueyo. He's saying the right things. But then there was some other guy. I don't remember his name, but like his thing started to go viral. Another programmer dude with access to big data tools. He's like, check out all these graphs. Not a big deal. Check out all these graphs. This is totally overblown. Like mainstream media is freaking you out, that type of thing. And uh, there was like total takedowns of his article, like on Twitter by expert epidemiologists. And then eventually it went back to medium and they took him down. And now his article had to be kind of hosted on more of like one of these outsider alternative research sites. Um, and so that was just, just an example of like two amateurs, you know, cause the data yeah. epidemiological data is actually being openly shared globally right now, just so we can all kind of make this happen. But then you have these two amateurs with kind of like power tools, kind of like reaching very divergent conclusions. And it's like, well, how, but now there's a whole population of like, look at that. Look at this is the, the institutional narrative and the experts and medium is just a slave to the, whatever you want to call this. And they're just like pushing that guy out. He's right, but they won't let him talk. Right. Like it's conspiracy yeah. or, you know, Pueyo's just, just validating the institutional narrative and he's wrong. You know, like you could sort of flip the other way around. <laughs> it's like kind of crazy. It is totally happening. And I, I think that's such a good like who who do you trust to cross check? Who do you trust? I think that's one of the questions. Like who would that guy trust to cross check and mm -hmm. tell, tell him that his information 
maybe is coming up short, right? That, that'd be an interesting question I would actually have for that, uh, the man who got censored of like, okay, who would you trust to cross-check your data? And if they gave you pushback, you would value that yep. and, and integrate that. I think that's an interesting question because that's, you know, that's the, there's been so much pathology in, in systems and lineage that, you know, I think it's easy to focus on that, but the hope with any regulation or lineage or system, right, is just a somewhat quality control check, right? That's kind of the hope that it's it's making sure it's somewhat true <laughs> versus like totally not true, right? And see, and we see this. I mean, I see this in my world. The difference between you know a therapist and a coach, right? Therapist, you have to go through years and years of the system. Um, to get a certain certification so you can do certain types of things. Mm-hmm. And then other people, we can just call ourselves coaches <laughs> and kind of do the same thing with no cross check. And okay, I decided I'm a coach. I took a weekend workshop. Um, I'm going to guide you to the deepest <laughs> aspects of yourself. Right. And, but who's cross checking me is, am I causing you more harm in that? It's possible. You know, it's definitely possible. There's also plenty of people who get a certification and in psychotherapy that have no ability to resonate with another human being or guide them to any kind of depth. So I don't, I don't have an answer for that, but I, this idea of, you know, it's actually been a while since I've been excited about open source again. And this idea of, Oh, actually what we're trying to do is liberate the cross check. So mm-hmm. more and more people have access to that, which hopefully makes the data or the structure or whatever it is that's being cross-checked even stronger and more trustable. Right. Yeah. And that we need that right now. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think I gotta, I gotta button this up pretty quick here to get to another thing, but um, maybe this is a good teaser. Like we're, we don't have those systems yet. We're, I should say these systems are sort of partially formed through some amount of these kind of giant digital platforms, decentralization. You might say Wikipedia has some amount of way of cross-checking itself. Mm-hmm. But like, we're not there yet, right? We're in a we're in the disrupt period. And in the disrupt period, there's just a lot of fragmentation of shared reality. And my hope is out of this crisis, however you want to describe this crisis that we're in, is it like a broader sense-making, meaning-making crisis that's been going on for like the first decade or two of this new century that we're in? Or is this, um, is this like something we can solve with like the next generation of technologies? And what would those technologies look like? You know, I think of open source or blockchains or reputation systems. And I think teasing that as a potential future conversation would be kind of fun because we're not there, but there are interesting ideas that are out there for collective reality improved upon the institutions that we've already had. I think that's a perfect between the micro and the macro, you know, part of what you've dedicated, you know, in my opinion, so much of your life to is helping enable individuals to create shared reality with other individuals on the kind of more macros or micro scale. And yeah, what you just spoke to is definitely intriguing of, yeah, what would it mean to start developing systems? So systems themselves supported us in weaving shared reality. Um, And that is something we, I I can can only hope emerges and that we're, 
we have, we to, have co to create though at the same time. So we even have to have some shared reality about weaving shared reality. Of, oh, you know, if we're going to have cross-checking on the truth on the social web, okay, what is truth, right? And from these different levels of consciousness and whatnot. So we should definitely talk about that again. And like always, man, what a fantastic, fun, wide-ranging conversation. Uh, I, I, I definitely have had much illuminated for myself today. Cool. That was super fun. Let's do it again. Absolutely, brother. And yeah, definitely read Michael's article. We'll post it in the show notes here and a couple of things he found as well. And let us know what you thought. If you heard this, shoot me a message, shoot Michael a message, leave a comment, something like that. We'd love to get some feedback. Cool. Special shout out and thanks to Screaming Witness for the amazing intro and outro song. Check them out.